Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. What a wonderful illustration of the level of self-indulgence that exists between the feudal lords of Illinois' political class. I'm talking, of course, about former governor, treasurer, lieutenant governor, Pat Quinn, having a press conference yesterday to answer a question nobody was asking. (laughs) Will you run for mayor of the city of Chicago? And his answer is no. Who holds a press conference to tell you what they're not doing, as if there was much anticipation about this decision? But, of course, the Chicago press corps. Room was filled. The ministers of the media were all there so they could pass on this proclamation of zero importance to to the plebs out there, the rest of us. We, the people, need to have the chance not just to vote for candidates, Thanks, but for, to vote for issues. Oh, really, Pat? That's what we're doing? I think uh, my opportunity to serve uh, comes best at starting that and conducting that petition drive and working with people in other communities in Illinois on their petition drives and referendums. I mean, how self-indulgent. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen this before in all the time that you've been here where, you know, he will, he let people get video of him getting signatures. You know, he's the former governor. He's going to be the great white hope. And then has a press conference and basically says he's not running. Well, let's take the occasion of um, Pat Quinn, you know, avuncular man of the people. Right. Isn't that right. Pat Quinn's persona? Right. He said the forever advocating for others and oh, those yeah. less fortunate. Right. Yeah. Forever. In, he's an advocate words, man. What, what he forever is, is on the taxpayer's dole because he's a career politician and that's all he is. That's who Pat Quinn is in his rumpled suit with his bull jive man of the people rap that he runs and his citizen petitions. Career politician Pat Quinn subsisted on the taxpayer dole. So let's take this fleeting moment of Quinn's fleeting insertion into the public mind to take a look at how he benefits from the fleecing of Illinois taxpayers, Mr. Man of the People. Of course, I'm talking about the public sector pension system in Illinois. Oh, that old thing. Oh, yeah, I know. Squeaky, or what was he, the Python pension? Squeaky the Squeaky. Pension Python. That's a, yeah. yeah, we had, had a cartoon, cartoon character that was yeah. supposed to solve this when Pat was governor, but it didn't work out, although it's worked out for him since he left office in January of 2015. 
during his uh, lifetime on the taxpayer doll as a servant. Right. I don't know how much. Quinn contributed $190,000 to his pension. All right. That is not enough to cover the first 18 months of pension benefits he received. His first year out of office, he collected $129,000. So that would be 2015. Over the course of his lifetime, he'll collect $3 million. 119, excuse me, 190000 in, guaranteed $3 million out. Wow. Does that sound about what your 401k is delivering for you? 312-642-5600, turnkey.proanswer line. 64636DA, turnkey.protect line. You know, one of the things I've said for a long time, and uh, we have some legislators who have volunteered to opt out of the system to at least try to provide a good example, opt out of the pension and benefits for a part-time job. But you're never going to get term limits. And uh, term limits is the tail wagging the dog anyway. Fundamentally, you need to take the money out of the position. And one way you do that is eliminate pensions for elected officials because that's the real payout. I mean, not to mention, you know, the the salary, six-figure guaranteed salary for these politicians, too, or in the case of the General Assembly, 75 grand for a part-time job. That's pretty good, too, especially when you can leverage it for private gain, which many do. But the 190 in and 3 million out. That's not, come on. Was and he, by the way, this is nobody, just for nobody the deserves that. I don't care how good he is at his job. It's just it's not only for well, it's just it's, it's systemic. It's not about deserve. Is is that financeable? And we've proven it's not. There's nobody who really believes that we're ever going to pay down a quarter of a trillion dollars in unfunded pension liabilities. They just want theirs, and they just want to get theirs before the thing collapses on itself like a dying star. But that that's where the real money is at. That's what Madigan figured out. It wasn't getting the, you know, idiot nephews of politicians' jobs so they could make fifty grand as a saint, uh, as a sign painter for IDOT. That wasn't. That's not the payoff. The payoff is do twenty years, do twenty five years, and get a guaranteed seven figure present net present value pension. That's the payoff. The payoff is after fifty, you're set. You have an annuity that cannot be touched, that can only increase in value, and you can go do something else. You're secure. You're safe. How about all the people financing it? You know, it, it's really something. Just to give you you know, more detail on this, I, I know mm-hmm. most people, I, I don't know, I, they don't care, they've given up. But, um, <laughs> I mean, it's just so, so rotten. And all the lecturing you get from the Pat Quinns and all of these other feudal lords forever on the public dole. The uh, General Assembly retirement system is the worst funded of the five state pension systems. Of course it is. They have uh, this is this 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 number is a little bit old, but I think there's something uh, like 15 percent funded. Even worse than Chicago police and fire. Um, and by the way, it's not just Quinn. You know, 
Uh, Jim Edgar gets uh, this is this Much is a few years could. old now. Jim Edgar gets about 150 grand from the General Assembly retirement system and another 60 grand from the State University retirement system. I mean, Jim Edgar's got a net present value pension, especially. I mean, he's he's been gone since 1998. I mean, he's collected he's he, millions, millions and millions, and he's got millions more to collect. Most Illinoisans are never going to see that kind of cash in retirement. It, it, it's not even. It's not even what they're going to see. It's the return and the guaranteed return. You put 190 in and you get a guaranteed three million dollars out. It's fraudulent. Where does that exist? And understand who's paying for this. I mean, it's obvious we're paying for it, but what the distribution is. Taxpayers contribute eight times more than legislators into the system in order to provide these gold-plated pensions to politicians. And people are just getting their taxes, you know, online. Got a text message. Dan and Amy, excuse me, when are you going to talk about property taxes? Mine jumped from 5,300 to 8,000. Uh-huh. When are we going to talk about property taxes? You always, we always talk about you always. I've been talking about this for 20 years uh, because we're, the pensions, uh, these gold-plated pensions are directly connected to the usurious property taxes, the highest property taxes in the nation. How many times on this show has someone heard me say, you don't own your home in Illinois, it's just collateral for someone else's guaranteed seven-figure pension? Uh, yeah, and I don't know if you're on that next-door neighbor app here. But I'm on the one for Southport. All people are doing is biatching about property taxes. We, you elected these people into office again and again and again. It's more than that. Not only do you elect the people, you're you're so bad at connecting dots, which of course is what they rely on. More money for schools? Well, sure. They're asking for Joe Barrios what, to come back. I'm like, what, oh, what, please. What, where, like, like the like the Cook County Assessor matters in this equation. It, it's your choices. Public policy-wise, more money for schools? Of course. Oh, yeah. Of course. For the children. Uh, where is it going? Doesn't matter. Just more and more and more. Well, look at your property tax bill. Um, and look at every yep. line item and all the yep. units of government. Do I love all this government? I sure do. Do I think they should get paid a living wage or whatever that is, which means more, 20 or 30% more than I make? I sure do. Do I think that they should get gold-plated, seven-figure guaranteed pensions? Why not? I sure do. Sure, yep. And, but my property taxes, my property taxes. Oh, no. So, you know, someday when you get to a point of critical mass, boy, that seems like a day that's far away, where people actually have the ability to make calculations of opportunity cost, connect dots between what you see government doing and the bills that you're receiving in the mail, the quality of life you're financing versus the quality of life that's accessible to you. When people can start uh, addressing these, these issues within that framework, then you'll have the possibility of a new day dawning in Chicago and Illinois, but not until then. Jim and Crown Point, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Politics is the only Ponzi scheme that actually works. Um, I had a uh, well, right a because cousin. because you never run out of other people's money. Exactly. Um, I had a cousin that was a speechwriter for a senator back in the sixties. Uh, uh, the senator calls up and says, "Do you want to come out to San Francisco for the weekend?" He said, "Sure." Goes to the airport, gets on a plane. He's the only one in the plane. He goes to Four Star Hotel. He's uh, treated like a king. And he, they, he goes right back. 
think of all the waste. It's just that one weekend. Thanks for the call, Jim. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. First with Sebastian Gorka today at three, right before Sean Thompson at four on AM five sixty. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Have you got your tickets yet? Did you get your tickets? The tour started. Taylor Swift? No. Oh no. Bigger. Think bigger. Oh, Too small. I know. Michelle, Michelle Obama. Obama book tour. She's so pretty. Michelle, gorgeous. <laughs> Michelle Obama book tour. It's kicked off her third book. The light we carry, overcoming in uncertain times. Yeah, it's about how she handled COVID um, and how the transition between when they left the White House. Because do you remember that day when President Trump was inaugurated and she looked absolutely just destitute? She looked sick. She looked physically ill leaving the White House and handing it over to the Trumps. So that's what the book's about. Very uh-huh. exciting. Yeah, and um, we learn apparently in the book... Of the sacrifices she made for the nation, not least of which, not least of which has to do with her hair. She wanted to wear her hair in braids at some point, she says, but the country wasn't ready for that. And I'm not kidding. She said not only that the country couldn't handle her hair in braids, she said, quote, let's let me keep my hair straight. Let's get health care passed. <laughs> That's how Obamacare got passed. What? Let me keep my hair straight and let's pass. Let me keep okay. my hair straight. Yeah. Let's get health care passed. So she thought she it'd be was, too much she, of a distraction. If she got braids, it'd be a distraction from getting health care passed. That's right. She so sacrificed she wearing her hair in braids so that we could have a backdoor government takeover of health care. I mean, that's the kind of selfless servant well, leader she is. Uh, this uh, was taken up by uh, two of the many sentimental bar- barbarians who man the news desk, news desk, at CNN. Victor Blackwell and Allison Camerata, they kicked this around. Because both of them understand where she's coming from. Of course they do. 
I totally get it. I think I, I understand that. I think she's right. Yeah. Um, I often feel America can't handle my natural hair either. I mean, I think, honestly, I think that we are. Very different, but I hear you. Sort of, except that I think black, white, male, female, we mm -hmm. all conform to established beauty standards. We just do. It's hard to break out of those. Yeah, but especially for black women, and when you are the first black anything, you are a diplomat, uh, and in this role as the, the first lady of the country, she uh, quite literally represents the country more than just black people. But, um, you know, the tan suit, when she wore shorts on, on Air Force yeah, One, I bad. mean, this family that was, was criticized in a way that, that uh, few other families, I'm not going to say no other family, but few other families were. And I, I totally understand what you're saying there. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line. I know you couldn't have handled Michelle Obama's braided hair back then. I don't know. Can I, don't, you, I, can, I kind of can, agree can, with that. Excuse me. Can I finish? Sure, you can, Dan. While I braid my hair, thank you. Can you handle Michelle Obama's hair being braided now? Have we have we made progress from twenty oh eight? 2010, 24, have we made enough progress where you think you're ready to see a black woman in a position of authority, an iconic black woman, we're told, in a position of authority with her natural hair? Or is it still too soon? That's what I'd like to know. Um, I don't think, I think the the country could handle that. But I think back then, if she would have braided her hair, I don't know. I don't know if, like, the Rush Limbaugh's, I, I don't think they would have left that alone. I think that would have been a talk topic on a radio show if she had braided her hair back then. But I, I remember the shorts day, and I remember thinking, oh, dear God, she needs a stylist. Because <clears throat> she went to Martha's Vineyard wearing shorts and, like, a T-shirt. Like, no, no, the whole world. You are one of the most photographed women in the world. you got to step up your game. And then somebody got to her, obviously, and, you know, I think she's a gorgeous woman, and I liked her oh, style stunning. over the years. Oh, I did. yeah. No, terror. Of course, but yeah. I, don't know. I mean, she kept talking too. She hated being first lady. I mean, she every interview that I see her on, she's like, "I lived in the bubble. I couldn't. You guys could go out and go to the store. I could never just leave and go to the store. No, I know she's. A I victim. could never just leave and go uh, work out. You know, I had to have it had to be planned in advance. And she said, and then during COVID, it was very hard for her because people kept asking her for advice and what to do. And her advice was get up every day, take a shower. And put on grown-up clothes. Don't lay around all day in sweats and, you know, just get up and just act like you have somewhere to go, even though you're locked in your house. And all of that is to say what exactly? No, I'm just saying that, that this is how, what her, you know, rich people have problems too, and those were her, her problems. Oh, no, I know. She She's a victim. That's yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, no, she, no, I know. She agrees with you. She agrees with you that she has been a victim all her life from the Ivy League to the state house, to the White House, to the book tours. When they go low, we thing, go high. If, if there's one thing she is, it's a victim. She's made that clear. I agree. You know, I, I don't think we were ready. I, we weren't ready for Barbara Bush to braid her hair. Laura, Hillary, Ew. and even Michelle. And but now I wonder if we are. I'm still, you know, getting comfortable with you wearing your hair naturally. As opposed to, you know, yeah. making this sure that it conforms look. to the current beauty standards, as Allison Camerata so incisively offered. What's her natural hair look like? She's a white chick. What is she talking about? Unless, I don't know what she's talking about. 
She just told you what she's talking about. I know, about. but Conforming I mean. Conforming to the standards, the current standards of beauty. All right, then you know what? Let it go natural tomorrow. See what happens. These are wonderful people. Barack and Michelle Obama, wonderful people. Aren't they? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. America was just getting used to a black president, she said, to have a first lady braid her hair. Too much black at the time. You know, they, the, the great thing about them is they know just how black to be when. I mean, that's the way they talk. You know, Delano Squires, who's a uh, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, really, really sharp guy. One of my favorite sort of commentators who's come on the scene that not enough people know about. He was on Jason Whitlock's podcast recently, uh-huh. uh, his podcast, Fearless. And they were talking about uh, the uh, Wakanda Forever movie and some of the themes in that movie. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but... Uh, something Delano Squire said generally is applicable here. Any group that sees representation in and of itself as life's highest virtue is extremely susceptible to all different types of programming. Um, you know, if because the people who do culture, who do art, who do movies, who do media, understand, all right, if we package this message within the right messenger and they have and they check the right boxes, then we can push whatever we want and we can move people and we can pull certain strings and they'll just accept it. Exactly. And um, this is something that has increased with unbelievable rapidity from Barack and Michelle Obama to present because they were the perfect vehicle the perfect representation to advance identitarianism, the, fer- the per- perfect front men and women, man and woman, for the radical left. And they got, every, got a lot of people through the door to spread out across the fruited plains and propagate this representation as the highest order. And once you get the representatives, then you use them to indoctrinate, inculcate, advance your cultural flags, and their flags are all of the new Marxist variety. Again, understanding how things come to be, just as we were talking before about connecting dots between public policy and the bills that you get in the mail and the quality of life you have access to versus the quality of life you're being forced to underwrite. As opposed to just keeping your head down and nodding along while somebody who has had a life that could only happen in America continues to bitch on book tours about how she's a victim. They are disgraceful people. They are awful, awful people, these sentimental barbarians whether they're former presidents and first ladies or whether they're you know, room temperature intellects blathering on inanely on a cable news desk. Sentimental barbarians with an emphasis on barbarian. 
Joe in Hoffman Estates. I don't think anyone would have minded uh, her corn rolling her hair at all. Um, it would have been acceptable, not even noticed, if she just would have kept the hair in her head straight. So that's my comment. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, it would have been commented on. Right. Like, yeah. 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 Yeah, what? I think people yeah. would have freaked out, Dan, if she oh, did corn right. rolls or No, it would have been hair. there would have been a meltdown. We would have lost the nation. Um, by the way, this is the same person who is volunteering for all the fashion mag covers and spreads. Oh, the horror of that. Wow, that must have been so painful for her to have to go through. They'd be on the cover of Vogue and Cosmo every other week. I wonder if she would have been if she had the ra- braids though. I doubt it. Spare, spare me. Oh, we're so racist. That's what she's saying. I know. And that's what you're facilitating. Yeah, the first lady is commented on the just as Trump is commented on being, you know, a fat guy or the suits or whatever. Everybody's fashion is commented on. Everybody's physical appearance is commented on when you're in the public eye as much as these politicians are. So boo fracking who? Oh, would have got commented on. Right. Like everything does. Nonsense. Tony in Downers Grove. Well, Dan, this is it just angers me because she did this all through his presidency. Well, she did. The way they spoke, she she spoke at a she gave a commencement speech. She told an all black college that no matter what you do, no matter what you achieve, the deck is going to be stacked against stacked against you. And that's what both of them do. They use insipid rhetoric to propagate an ideology rooted in dividing the country. That is it in a nutshell. And she's going to, they're going to put, I, I'm not going to be shocked if they put her up to run for president. Oh, no. She is not going to run for any office ever. Why would she take the step down? Because she doesn't need to. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to be in the bubble. She doesn't want that. She wants yeah. to live her life, uh, be I'm, her true self. I'm aware. No, she, yeah. there's no, there's no true self there. That is not. That is a one-dimensional human being. There's no there there. But why would she take a step down? Why not amass another hundred million dollars and be this beloved figure, and uh, and and, pr- and proselytize your victimology? You're much more powerful, influential, and nobody lays a glove on you. And you enjoy a life that, you know, uh, one in I don't know. 50 million Americans could even conceive while telling us how bad America is. Sentimental barbarism on steroids, those two. Disgraceful people. But I, I know I can't wait for Obama land to open in Chicago on the lakefront. Once they get construction perfect. back up and running after they it's figure a perfect, out the news. It's a perfect monument to the sentimental barbarism of the city. And what it's produced. Perfect monument. Obama land. Mark and Rochelle. Yeah, I just think this hair thing was like, it's a test bed for them to expand their checkbox list. And then if it, if it sticks, then watch. All across America, we got hair issues. It's like you can just see it ripple through everything. And I just think that's what they're using her for. Like a, it's just a test of waters. For more ammunition, 
to distract from the issues. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right. They think that it would be people like conservatives getting uh, you know, using it to distract and divide. When in point of fact, I could care less if she wore hair like Julius Irving when he played for the Virginia Squires. Who cares? They're obsessed with identity. They're obsessed with the superficial. They use it, as Tony from Downers Grove properly said, to divide. And then we have to sit here and say, oh, well, she's so this and she's so that, and play along with her victimology, demagoguery. I don't think so. Pound it. And pound it to all of you vacuous nitwits. And I'm not talking about our listeners, but you know who I am talking about, our listeners do. Go pound it, all you vacuous nitwits that genuflect before this, that uh, pile on like the mobsters you are to force the hardworking people across the racial spectrum to finance their largesse from the lakefront to all of the other perks and benefits of their post-presidential Opulence. Sick person. Despicable person. Barbaric person. Michelle Obama. I wonder if she'll uh, come on the show when she's in Chicago. No. No. The, The United Center will be full. Full of sentimental barbarians who've destroyed the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. I think she's going to Madison Square Garden, too. And will everywhere they dominate. They're a pestilence. People like Michelle Obama. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560, The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, incoming House Oversight Committee Chairman Jim Comer, a Republican from Kentucky, and other House Republicans addressed the media yesterday telegraphing, based on reports that have already been done, which they've done their best to ignore, the D.C. press corps, of course they have, telegraphing what will come when Republicans take control of the House in January, 
they are going to investigate Biden, Inc. That means the big guy. That means his brother, Jim. That means his Promethean blow artist son, Hunter. They will be investigated based on the information we have already. And, you know, I know there's going to be some cynicism in reaction to this. Oh, nothing's ever going to happen. And this, hey, uh, all the House Republicans can do is what they have within their power to do. And what you're hearing from them is they're going to use that power to the extent they have it. And that's all you can ask. Three whistleblowers describe President Biden as chairman of the board for these businesses. He personally participated in meetings and phone calls. Documents show that he was a partner with access to an office. To be clear, Joe Biden is the big guy. This evidence raises troubling questions about whether President Biden is a national security risk and about whether he is compromised by foreign governments. Comer provided additional detail that they've pulled together in part from whistleblowers. And raising questions about Biden, Inc. doing business with America's enemies. Is that troubling at all? Well, it is the House Republicans. And uh, this is going to potentially be uh, something that comes to a head. People are already sort of preordaining the divide between those who want to the House Republicans to go wherever the facts lead here to pull together as much information as they can to get as much detail as they can from numerous FBI whistleblowers. And those, oh, you know, let's not do too much of the investigations that produce reports and little else and and uh, create more division and rancor within the electorate. Let's not you know, raise the specter of the I word and go off on some fishing expedition to impeach the president when you don't have control of the Senate, so you know he's never going to be removed from office? Well, why not? <laughs> if, I mean, can you if, imagine if, if one of this was one of Trump's children? It well, would have been blown out of the water. Well, right. You'd, and, I mean, my and, God, they wouldn't have waited years. You either act based on the evidence or you don't, regardless of what the balance of political power is. And since we had... Uh, two impeachments that weren't going anywhere uh, under Trump in terms of the standard setting by the left. If you can do better than that standard they set, then I wouldn't leave, I wouldn't uh, take anything off the table. Comer on Biden Inc. and our enemies. The investigation reveals a family that engaged with some of America's most powerful adversaries, planning to sell one of the largest sources of cobalt for electric vehicles in the world to the Chinese, for example. The Bidens flourished and became millionaires by simply offering access to the family. Among the dozens of shell companies the Bidens set up, there were millions of dollars of wire transfers, flights on Air Force Two to conduct personal business, and meetings with heads of state, all while Joe Biden was aware of what was happening. Now, uh, that's things we've heard before, but they bear repeating and repeating and repeating and investigating. Something else, though, that he got specific on, which hasn't been talked about nearly as much, but this is a specific body of evidence that the House Oversight Committee should have access to, and Republicans have been unable to get access to these documents to this point. 
the SARS documents and what they could tell us, the suspicious activity reports from banks, Biden Inc. transactions that were flagged by U.S. banks. All the while, he turned a blind eye. Many transactions related to these businesses have raised red flags at U.S. banks. A suspicious activity report, or SAR, is a document a bank must file with the Treasury Department when a transaction is suspected to be related to money laundering or fraud or other types of criminal activity. According to media reports, the Biden family accumulated over 150 SARs. One SAR generated by an American bank to the Treasury Department connects Hunter Biden and his business associates to international human trafficking, among other illegal activities. The money that was being made from foreign principals in the same room as Joe Biden was increasingly spent on furthering illegal activity. The SAR showed that Hunter Biden was conducting business with suspected human traffickers. The money gained through influence peddling was function was funneled to a suspected criminal enterprise, again, one linked to human trafficking. We have repeatedly called on the Biden Treasury Department to release additional financial documents to committee Republicans, but thus far, Treasury has refused. Yeah, uh, now that those reports need to be disclosed and and they need to be investigated. So the suspicious activity, you know, linked to suspected human traffickers. Okay, so now let's understand who he was doing business with and exactly what those links are and see if there's something there. What I learned yesterday that I didn't know that they're trying to help a company from China get their foot in the door on American natural gas to get them into the American uh, natural gas industry. Right. They put up a map of with all the countries that the Bidens were doing business or were attempting to do business as there were 50 countries, five zero. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Comer's uh, summation on what you can expect from the House Oversight Committee. The Biden administration has answered none of our requests for information regarding the Biden family or the financial transactions they engaged in. Instead, the Biden administration has spent over a quarter of a million dollars to staff to, quote, deflect Hunter stories. Protecting the president's son who has committed crimes with Americans' tax dollars is a waste. The domestic and international scheme that promised access to wealth in a future Biden administration constitute fraud. And the president's participation in enriching his family is, in a word, abuse of the highest order. Rooting out waste, fraud, and abuse will be the primary goal of a Republican House Oversight Committee. As such, this investigation will be a top priority. Good. And I understand the Biden, Inc. family has retained the law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe (laughs) to address these allegations of waste, fraud, and abuse. And I don't want anybody to forget. Remember during the campaign and then right after he went to, he said, I have no idea about my son's business dealings or my brother's, which was all a lie. That's right, and this was... They went uh, on ABC News, member too, and said that? Ugh. Well, Jim Jordan was next to the microphone following Jim Comer, and uh, Jim Jordan had some pointed remarks directly at the press, and he also reminded the press and the world how the Biden response to these accusations and to this evidence has evolved over time. And I think it's also important to understand, never forget how the story has changed. I mean, think about this. When it started off, it was, no, it's not his laptop. It's not his laptop. Then it was, well, it's his laptop, but remember, it's Russian disinformation and no one did anything wrong. Then it was, well, maybe 
maybe he did something wrong, but President Biden didn't know about it. And now it's, well, maybe President Biden knew about it and was involved, but it, it didn't influence his decisions. In fact, yesterday, there was a story in Politico which said that. The story in Politico yesterday investigating the investigators' dim strategist to launch counterpunch to House GOP. Story in Politico yesterday, here's what it said in there. Quote, no evidence has publicly emerged that Joe Biden's decisions were affected by his son's business dealings. Wow, we, we, so we've went from it wasn't his laptop and it was Russian disinformation to, oh, whatever was in there didn't affect the president's business dealings, even though he was involved, even though the laptop was real, even though it wasn't disinformation. We've, that's how far we've come. Come a long way, baby. Jordan also had uh, this message to the press corps, speaking of the Russian disinformation stage of the spin. Jamie, uh, so I would just start with this question. What part of Mr. Comer's presentation was Russian disinformation? I mean, never forget what happened on October 19th, 2020, 15 days before the most important election we have in our country. Who's going to be the next president of the United States? 15 days before that, Mr. Brennan, Mr. Clapper and 49 other people signed a letter that said the following. It is for these reasons that we write to say that the arrival on the U.S. political scene of emails purportedly belonging to Vice President, Biden, uh, Vice president Biden's son, Hunter, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. They further went on to say, we want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post are genuine or not, just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in this case. And of course, that letter became the pretext for suppressing this story, again, just days before the most important election we have in our country. So I would ask this, was J.P. Morgan's suspicious activity report to the Treasury Department was that just a classic earmark of a Russian information operation? How about when Hunter Biden sent the email that Mr. Comer pointed to, sent the email asking for keys to his new office space, one for himself, one for President Biden, one for his uncle Jim Biden, and one for the emissary for the chairman of the Chinese energy company, CFCC. Was that just Russian disinformation operation in place? What part of Mr. Comer's presentation prompted the FBI to go to Facebook and say, hey, 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 you want to be on the lookout for Russian misinformation here this election season? Uh, I tell you, whatever skepticism you have about uh, Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans, what they'll do in the majority, I'm looking forward to these House oversight hearings. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking forward to uh, regular reports from the Jim Comers and the Jim Jordans of the world, I'll tell you that. And don't forget, you know, Hunter Biden, he paid his dad's AT&T phone bill while he was vice president. He spent thousands of dollars on house repairs. And he complained about that in an email that he had to pay for, you know, just just, you know, constructing new walls, paid AC fixes at the Biden's Wilmington home. Well, that's one of the other issues that Comer raised is the commingling of funds, potentially bank accounts between uh, his son, the Promethean blow artist and president, the big guy. Uh, Jim Jordan also noting how many FBI whistleblowers have come forward and one now retired FBI agent in particular that uh, he'd like to see before. Uh, well, he's the he would be the House Judiciary Committee, but either both committees based on 14 FBI agents who've come talk to our office as as whistleblowers. One of those agents said, and this is the term he used, he said at the highest levels of the FBI, specifically the Washington field office. 
He said it's rotted to the core. Not talking about rank and file agents. They're doing good, good work. Talking about the top people at the Washington field office. We had another whistleblower who brought up the name Mr. Tebold and said Mr. Tebold is pressuring agents to catalog and categorize cases in a specific way to satisfy this narrative about domestic violence extremism. But what's interesting is a different whistleblower, one who didn't come to our office, a different whistleblower who went to Senator Grassley's office, said that Mr. Tebold, by the way, the head of the special agent in charge at the Washington field office, Mr. Tebold is also the guy who suppressed information about the Hunter Biden story in October of 2020. I'd like to talk to Mr. Tebold. In fact, we've asked to talk to Mr. Tebold, even though he said publicly, I welcome a chance to uh, answer questions. He's refused to come in and talk to us. That's someone we need to talk to. Yeah, sounds like somebody who needs to receive a subpoena. Tom in Blue Island, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan and Amy. You know, Dan, it, I, don't, I don't feel any American hopes that their president is found out to be corrupt. But at least if we at least some investigation can be done and some of these questions can be answered. I mean, uh, you know, we just lost an election and at least this is heartening to see that maybe uh, there'll be some sort of equal justice with these men. And I have a lot of faith in Jim Jordan. I'm not saying it'll lead anywhere, but at least it gives you some hope that there can be some, some semblance of a level playing field. Thanks for the call. And remember this <clears throat> Remember this text message. Hunter complained to his daughter in 2019, quote, half my salary um, goes to pay my father's bills. And he told her, don't worry. Unlike Pop, I won't make me make you give me your half of your salary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People forget Janice, about that. Janice, uh, Morocco, Indiana. Hi, Dan and Amy. Uh, I hear the Republicans say that they're going to hold people accountable. But I really don't have any confidence in which, what they say because – with accountability comes consequences, punishment, prosecution. Having an investigation and exposing someone's name and what they did is an accountability. I think it's just going to be business as usual. Well, thanks for the call, Janice. Like, they don't have the power to put anybody in House Republican jail. Uh, so yeah, what you can – I mean, I go back to what I said before. They're doing they're, – it seems like they're pretty intent on doing what they can within their power. And then it's up to the public, really, to put pressure on the Department of Justice to pursue all appropriate action based on evidence of criminal wrongdoing or not, or not. So, right, I mean, one of the things is if, if you, um, you know, don't hold elected officials accountable, then... You shouldn't expect that you're going to get accountability within the halls of power. So we'll see. We'll see. I wouldn't foreclose the notion that there is so much evidence here because specifically Hunter Biden is so wildly reckless. Think about where most of this evidence has come from. His freaking laptop, because he left it at a repair shop, for goodness sake. He's sexually not exactly, deviant. Ugh. Not exactly, you know, an international criminal here of high order or high sophistication. So, you know, I, I wouldn't just, you know, throw up your hands at this stage. You were never going to get accountability with Nancy Pelosi with, at the speaker's gavel. But you have now individuals who are pretty motivated— uh, who, who, by the way, have been beating the drum and doing what they can to raise the 
specter of this issue, even while in the minority. And now they have a little bit more authority because they've got committee chairmanships and the power associated with that. And even if it doesn't come in terms of a criminal prosecution, it could be the basis, at least in part, for a political reckoning in 2024 that didn't quite come this time. So I wouldn't be fatalistic about this because there's a lot there. And by the way, (laughs) let me underline 14 FBI whistleblowers and potentially growing that number. Really? You know, there's a lot of people maybe within FBI that don't like what the FBI has become either. And they're willing to speak up, at least as a whistleblower, because otherwise we wouldn't know what we know from Jim Jordan and Charles Grassley through these whistleblowers. I mean, he made $83,000 a month from Burisma. What does he know about running a gas company, especially a Ukrainian gas company? So Yeah, well, that's the I questions know. that's been asked for years, years. now. Greg and Schomburg. Well, Dan, to pick up on what you just said, I I totally agree. But we just have seen instance after instance of Republicans screwing things up. And the one thing that I hope that they do is they just figure out a way to get into the American head that likes nice stories that come out of the, you know, the drive-by media and, and have a really good way of getting that counteracted because it seems like it never happens. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, all I can offer is Jim Jordan in particular and Jim Comer in a more understated way have proven to be fairly tenacious. And uh, if they and, and and by the way, there were a lot of other House Republicans on the. Uh, the platform with them during this press conference, and if you have people that are willing to relentlessly message in a substantive way, based on what they're uncovering, bringing the American people along every step of the way, then, you know, it could be different this time. It could be different this time. There's no guarantees, but to uh, say yawn and this is just going to turn out the same way it always turns out, I think belies a level of confidence you should have that Jordan and others on the Hill are going to do everything they can. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. For some time, there's been discussion about a nursing shortage in this country and uh, that potentially jeopardizing the quality of care that is available in certain parts of the country. Well, uh, now, over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of uh, doctors retiring. You know, the profession was aging, and then they started retiring, particularly during COVID. But it wasn't just about COVID. Stanley Goldfarb has been writing about this for the last several years. He's a former associate dean at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. He wrote in the Wall Street Journal over the summer, physicians are being pushed to discriminate. Hospitals, state health authorities, and the federal government have all authorized race-based formulas for rationing COVID treatments. 
Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, which is Harvard's teaching hospital, is moving towards preferential care based on race across the board, not just COVID-related. And the Biden administration is offering higher Medicare reimbursement rates to hospitals and physicians who, quote, create and implement an anti-racism plan, unquote. To fight their supposed bias, physicians are being bribed into discriminating by race. And that has many of them deciding to hang up their stethoscopes. Uh, What kind of, what is the order of magnitude of this problem? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Zudi Jasser, who's the president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. We've talked to him often on uh, those topics. He's also the co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement. And he's a former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, author of A Battle for the Soul of Islam. But he is Dr. Zudi Jasser. He's a medical doctor as well. He's many, many things. Dr. Jasser, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be with you, Dan. Thanks for having me. So what about uh, what about race and the practice of medicine in America? Yeah, you know, there's a perfect storm happening, uh, not only as a result of the pandemic, but uh, all of this uh, critical race theory and uh, the use of identity politics. And, uh, you know, the what used to be one of the most revered professions where our best and brightest uh, were going into it. You know, I chair a bioethics program and have been very much uh, – dedicated to trying to bring out the best of uh, the moral values and and principles of of, uh, medicine in my practice of primary care for the last 25 years. And I can tell you in the past few years, the reason the data now shows 117,000 of our 1 million doctors are not going back into practice is a combination of this ridiculous type of uh, uh, upside-down prioritization where it's no longer about meritocracy, it's no longer about the best quality doctors and uh, getting our best and brightest, but really about punishing anybody who may uh, in in some way try to reject the fact that we are all racists or that we are all somehow treating uh, folks and our patients differently based on race. And, And the perfect storm is if you look at inflation, we are in the only profession right now, one of the only professions where we can't adjust our prices. So as the world goes up uh, around us of, of our, our payroll and our uh, all of our expenses are going up by 10, 20, sometimes 30, 40 percent, I can't change my prices. So uh, the, the insurance companies, Medicare, have me fixed on a uh, scale where I can't change what I charge for a visit. So therefore, as a result, it's becoming insolvent. And only 5 to 10% of physicians are even thinking about private practice coming out of residency, uh, let alone uh, the insolvency of it. And government doesn't care. They're going to even lower our Medicare reimbursement rates coming uh, January based on the current status. Uh, It's just untenable. So you're seeing not only shortage of support staff, medical assistance and nursing when we're trying to hire people, but they want higher wages in an economy where I can't even adjust my prices on the front line uh, seeing my patients. Well, I know one nurse who dropped out just because of burnout, but another one dropped out because they forced the vaccine on her. How many of these, you know, 117,000 individuals do you think left because of the vaccine mandates? And that's exactly that's a very interesting question. And that listen, you know, I, I got vaccinated and I wasn't anti-vaccine, but I, I was horrified to see some of the uh, mainstream so-called mainstream media sort of applauding physicians that uh, uh, mandated it uh, for their employees and mandated it for uh, patients that they wouldn't see patients who weren't vaccinated. I mean, all of a sudden, autonomy, which was one of the primary the primary principle that we we gave patients the 
uh, in our treatment with them to make sure that they had a choice. It, it was truly informed consent, and informed consent was thrown out the window in exchange for sort of this perception that the best way to get people vaccinated was through coercion rather than through choice. And yet, in all treatments we've all learned in the past 20 years since the Civil Rights Movement that the best way to, to be effective is through choice, not through mandates. And yet, somehow it was turned upside down where physicians and medicine was politicized. And that's what we're seeing. You know, Stan had a good piece uh, uh, yesterday, actually, in the New York Post, where he said the AAMC, which accredits medical colleges and medical schools across the country, mm-hmm. now has a scoring system for uh, DEI, uh, diversity, and inclu- diversity, equity, inclusion programs, where if they're less than 100%, they sort of get punished. And all of a sudden, it's no longer about quality and meritocracy. It's simply about you know, are they uh, towing the line on diversity, which is, I don't think, what patients really want to hear uh, when they're seeing their doctor. They want to know that they uh, are the best uh, in, in in knowledge and in compassion. Yeah, and, and I got to tell you, you know, somebody, people listening to this or paying attention to this, I, I can't imagine having confidence going to a doctor in, in any discipline in medicine you know, under the age of, I don't know, 45 or 50 because of exactly what's happening at the incubation level from K-12 to undergrad to med school. And it's amazing how pervasive this is. You know, I'm on uh, an organization called STARS, which is former flag officers in the military, and and I just uh, i am an advisor for them. But they're seeing this in the military academies. We're seeing it uh, across medical schools. Every discipline now somehow has been turned upside down to where this program has become a litmus test for professors, for others. Um, Major medical journals now are firing people who even question uh, the the fact that somehow we are presumptively racist when we see our patients versus whether we presumptively want to do what's best for humanity, for their care. And yes, there's no doubt that there might be some bigotry in certain things that happens, but the way to do that, the way to address it is to study it and, and to factor that in, but not to punish people as somehow presumptively bigots based on uh, uh, unproven uh, sentiments. Well, the, the other thing, too, is is it seems to me it would be in any profession if you don't have to, if you don't have to continue on to support your family. The forcing people to participate in in a lie, people who consider themselves and have demonstrated they're people of integrity and professionalism, and they have to participate in lies in order to continue doing what they're doing. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Recently, we talked about it earlier this week. In the New England Journal of Medicine, a study that was published suggesting not only did masks prevent transmission in K-12 through schools, you know, that's dubious, but okay, that's one thing. And we can, you know, do, do compare and contrast in different studies. But they went on, the authors of this study, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, to say that mask wearing among kids can reduce structural racism. And I, I, oh just, God. you know, so it's like, what? And, and there's, you know, there, there, what, what is the methodology and evidentiary basis to make such a, a claim? There is none, because there doesn't need to be. But but if I how can I associate with a profession or unless I again, again need to for a period of time that is propagating that sort of uh, that that sort of ersatz scholarship? Yeah, I mean, it, it's in, in philosophy, it's called reductio absurdum. Yeah. And the, the, the absurd nature of that is exemplified in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, where women who are told to cover their face somehow are told by the propagandist theologians 
that uh, it, is, it will prevent racism, it will prevent discrimination. If we all make you look like a bunch of garbage bags with your heads covered, that somehow that will make you more human and more equal because the collectivist mindset is that uh, if you have individuality, you are uh, going to be discriminated against. I mean, it's just a complete reversal of the way logic would have, which is individual autonomy is based on having the freedom to uh, express yourself, to have free speech, to dress as you wish, or, or, or express yourself in, in physical autonomy and, and uh, verbal autonomy. So, you know, I think if folks, if the New England Journal now thinks that somehow science is based on uh, equalizing everybody by covering their face, I think a lot of Muslims in the world would reject that uh, uh, based yeah. on freedom. So, so what's so what's I mean, what's going on in the medical profession? I mean, are, are you going to be like the tank man of the medical profession or are there are there people actually rallying within the profession against this and putting pressure on hospitals and medical schools to regain their senses? Well, I will tell you that at the beginning of every freedom uh, movement is economic uh, independence. So if we're going to, you know, one of the reasons at the end of the day, I don't believe physicians are leaving because of these social cultural things. I think uh, they're getting frustrated and on the verge of, of walking to the edge of the cliff. But the reason they're jumping off is they can't economically sustain their practices. So mm -hmm. okay. uh, no, I, don't, I don't believe that ultimately the huge shift in numbers the past two years is because of DEI. I think that's why they got to the cliff, but then they jumped off because it's just not economically viable anymore. So if we want physicians to stick around and not be beholden to the large medical conglomerates that are buying up uh, practices, private equity firms, and huge uh, institutions like uh, Humana and United and all these that are buying, Optum now owns, uh, is the largest owner of medical practices across the country. If that's going to stop and you want to preserve the independence of your local docs, then talk to your members of Congress, talk to them about a f fixing the Medicare, adjusting it to uh, price schedules to uh, cost of living and inflation, and, and we'll stick around and, and, and organize uh, in a more grassroots level. He is Dr. Zudi Jasser, president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, and author of A Battle for the Soul of Islam, and as well as you heard, a primary care physician for the past 25 years. Dr. Jasser, thanks as always. Appreciate your time. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. There was some hedging, some hedging after President Trump's announcement earlier this week that he's running for a third time. Some hedging in the sense that those who were ready to discard Trump and uh, and uh, that, that those who are ready to discard Trump are saying, well, if he if he is the Trump that we saw at Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday night, well, you know, maybe he's still a player in this. But if he's the Trump that was essentially what they're saying, if he's the Trump that was at the rallies leading up until the mid uh, to the midterm elections, then um, we don't. No, I don't him. think so. 
you know, it's interesting because you, 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 it's one thing for donors to abandon Trump, the mega donors say, no, I'm done with him. I'm not giving him any more money. I'm looking to the next generation, so on and so forth. But it's another thing for the party to do it because he still enjoys popularity and he's a mercurial sort. And you don't know how he's going to react were people to get openly hostile to him as opposed to saying something like, which you've heard a lot, appreciate all that he did, appreciate the fights that he put in. In many respects, he was treated unfairly. I still have serious questions about the administration of the election in 2020 in certain states, just like I do in 2022 in certain states, frankly. Um, But but we need to turn the page, new generation of leadership. It's as much about the new generation of up-and-coming governors like DeSantis as it is about Trump and so on and so forth. You know, that is sort of the answer that you're getting from people that are trying to sort of gently walk away without generating antagonism that has the potential to really roil the party, it seems to me. And, and I just, you know, personally— do you really want to go through another Republican debate? I mean, remember when he'd rip on Carrie, Carrie Fioretti, or sorry, um, Carly Fioretti because of her, you know, her long face, and he'd just make disparaging remarks about people that were just, you know, childish and just degrading. And I thought I, I, that's the only part I do not want to relive that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, by the way, the debates, no matter who is or isn't on the stage, they're going to get chippy at times. That's just I the nature of politics. So, went to a you know, level. name calling and uh, yeah, but I get it. Trump sort of has a unique way of doing that uh, and um, a real penchant in a way that some other candidates don't. And it is received differently in different quarters. Well, for uh, more of a handle on where things sit as the dust continues to settle from Last Tuesday, pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report, 5 p.m. Chicago time, weekdays. He's also the best-selling author of To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and The Crisis of 1876. Brett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Morning. So uh, the, the characterization I have uh, that, that I made in terms of where I think a lot of conservative reform Republicans are with respect to Trump, is that, is that fair? Is that, generally speaking, what you're hearing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you're you're hearing from a lot of uh, big party leaders and and average folks that they no doubt really liked Trump policies, uh, but didn't necessarily like everything that came with Trump, especially uh, January 6th, post January 6th and um, and some of the controversy. You know, that said, as he launches this campaign, uh, you know, he's he's got to be considered one of the front runners, uh, if not the front runner, because, you know, it depends on how many people get get in a primary. But, you know, you've got 25, 30 uh, percent who are diehard Trump fans. Yeah. And you don't have to get the big number if you have a number of people in a primary. Uh, the flip side is that his vice president, his secretary of state, two of his secretaries of defense, two of his White House chief of staffs, um, have all come out and said they wouldn't vote for him. And they're either running against him or just think it's time for the party to move on. That's well, not the best, you know, endorsement schedule. Right. Besides Jim Jordan, what other Republican is beating the drum for President Trump right now? Not a lot beating the drum. I mean, there are silent, you know, people that are not saying much. Yeah. Uh, and I think that they see that the winds have changed. Um, but they're also not willing to go out on a limb and, and attack him. 
Uh, and uh, uh, now just talking about uh, on the Hill, we heard from Jim Jordan and Jim Comer and others yesterday about the uh, Hunter and Biden, inve- the Biden Inc. investigations, including Hunter Biden, which will happen. They made that fairly clear um, on, on the Senate side uh, after the Rick Scott challenge to McConnell has failed. Um, what, what can we expect from from Senate Republicans uh, in terms of flying in formation with their House Republican colleagues who are in the majority? Yeah, I think they're going to try. I think a lot can, depends on really uh, Georgia. Uh, it's a lot different at 5149 than it is 5050 uh, in the Senate. And if Herschel Walker wins, it's 5050. And there will be an all out push to try to get Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin to come over to the, the GOP side. Um, not that that would work, but it would be different, a uh, different dynamic. I think that, you know, without majority, uh, you are a blocker. You're a uh, ice hockey goalie trying to stop the bad pucks from getting by. Um, and you're not going to get a lot of legislation through um, all over because there will be a House majority of Republicans. I think that, you know, he's talking, McConnell is, about trying to get things done between the 40-yard lines. Um, and there are some things that, that both sides agree on that they could get through. Usually they go to their corners because, uh, they, you know, it's part of a deal on another piece of legislation. And and, and, and on the House side, McCarthy, uh, obviously he's, you know, got some detractors too. Um, but he's going to have a very narrow majority and what's the feeling on the Hill about his ability to keep his caucus together the way that Pelosi was able to keep her caucus together during most of her time? Yeah, traditionally, Republicans are worse at that. Right, right. Uh, and so uh, he's got the first hurdle is to get elected uh, officially. While he's been nominated, he's about 30 votes short of the official election uh, come January with the new Congress. So He'll have some work to do, and what that means, we don't know yet. I mean, it may be some concessions to the Freedom Caucus. It may be uh, some leadership changes, some chairmanship changes. uh, But he's going to have to horse trade in order to get across the finish line. And then uh, he'll be walking on eggshells a bit because that majority is pretty slim. Well, who's his biggest challenger right now? Well, see, that's the thing. There isn't really one person. You know, Andy Biggs put his name in, but, you know, didn't even come close. Uh, others won't come close, but it's about it's about not getting the number. And that's how, you know, Paul Ryan ended up in the speakership is that McCarthy couldn't get the number of 218. Yeah. Um, going back to uh, what the House Republicans will do in the majority. So, OK, check on the Biden Inc. investigation. What about the Jan 6 commission? Um, you know, there's one line of argumentation, which I think is somewhat persuasive, that says don't disband the committee, um, sort of invigorate with legitimacy by having it be bipartisan as opposed to, you know, a, having a singular orientation. And let's get to some of these unanswered questions that the current Jan 6 committee won't ask, but that a lot of. And we saw that uh, this week with uh, Christopher Ray on the Hill. Uh, but a lot of uh, people want to know answers about with respect to FBI involvement, with respect to Pelosi and McConnell and their sergeants at arms and who knew what, when and so on and so forth. Uh, particularly if you're 
well, while while you have a DOJ that is continuing uh, ostensibly with their investigation into President Trump on multiple levels? I think it's a fascinating question. Uh, it's one that there is not a definitive answer to yet. I think that, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You go down January 6th, there will be ugly stuff that comes out about, you know, the foreign president, his administration that day, that that continues on the line that they've already gone down. But they could open up inquiries into security, posture, what Speaker Pelosi did or didn't do, um, you know, all kinds of things, FBI, DEA, that sort of stuff. Uh, but – or ATF, I mean um, – the – I think the biggest guess is that it, it shuts the uh, the shutters come down on January 6th. Mm. Uh, so then now that implicates Trump. So let's go back for one more turn at the presidential wheel. Uh, and do you see any surprises, uh, uh, any any people mounting a challenge that would be a surprise? Uh, you know, there's you mentioned the Pompeo's and the Pence's and but. Uh, yeah, I, Glenn Youngkin's been mentioned. That seems a little quick. I don't know how he positions himself vis-a-vis DeSantis, uh, Christy Noem. It seems to me that this is, despite it in perhaps being months before Ron DeSantis makes an announcement, it seems to me this is a binary at this point and then a bunch of other people who might run for their own reasons but are not really a serious part of the conversation. Yeah, I just it's tough to say this early, but I agree with you that DeSantis, uh, if he's getting in, and I bet he's getting in, I think they've suggested that the Chris Christie model of not getting in when the moment is ripe uh, is something that they're looking at closely, I think. Uh, so I would guess that he's in, but not until the spring, you know, April, May. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of folks are going to wait that long uh, until they actually officially jump in. I'll just caution that there's a lot that can happen, number one. Number two, you know, on paper, we thought that Scott Walker from Wisconsin was the guy that was going to lead the Republican Party. He did not make it anywhere. You know, on paper, we thought Tim Pawlenty from Minnesota fit all of the things that the electorate was looking for. He didn't even make it past the straw poll in Iowa. So you've got of stuff that materializes on the trail. And, you know, I'm not totally sold that, you know, it's a Trump versus DeSantis thing, that there could be others who um, who stir things up. Why do you think President Trump jumped in so early? Well, I think there's a number of factors. I think some of the DOJ moves uh, potentially had something to do with it, um, but also maybe trying to hope that he could clear the field. And, and I think that that's evident that that's not going to happen. Yeah, he he needs some time too to to rehabilitate himself coming out of the midterms. Maybe he recognizes that, maybe he doesn't, but he he does, and he's got to dull some blades between now and when uh, DeSantis might announce if if there's not going to be an all out stop Trump at any cost movement within the GOP. It would seem to me. Yeah, and I, I think there's. Um, a different air to being a presidential candidate that maybe also changes the dynamic for getting back on social media. You know, I mean, once you're a candidate, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it's a different a different pitch. You're now pitching yourself for the highest office in the land again. Why are you still off Twitter? And we'll have to 
wait to see what Elon has to say about that. He is Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report weekdays, 5 p.m. Chicago time. Also the best-selling author of To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and The Crisis of 1876. Brett, thanks as always. We'll see you guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. DHS Secretary Ali Mayorkas was on the Hill again yesterday, and that's always entertaining. The answers this guy comes up with, uh, this guy who even I think some on the center left want to see resign after his shameful handling of the uh, horse, uh, the, the, the border security agents on horseback who were wrongly accused, smeared really, of whipping Haitian migrants. And him knowing that wasn't the case, but right. going on TV and pretending it was in full investigation, he's outraged in all of that business for as long as he did. Yeah, whipping Haitians, what a joke. I mean, he's, he should lose his job for that. Well, also, else. also by the way, um, the you know complete lawlessness at the border is an issue. But as Josh Hawley pointed out to him, since that's not really something you're interested in oh, as Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, let's talk about what you're actually doing. I think my I think my colleagues have established, given what we're seeing on the southern border, the, the massive increase in illegality there, that that's clearly not a priority for your agency. So let's talk about what appears to be, and that is spying on Americans and censoring their speech. <laughs> that's awesome. OK, uh, so uh, what's Josh Holly basing it on based on the story in part at the The Intercept that we talked about a couple a couple weeks ago? We've talked about a couple times uh, that detail through emails the collaboration between the Biden administration and big tech companies to censor Americans. And Josh Hawley went chapter and verse on those emails. Let's take a look at this email from July 16th, 2021. It's over my shoulder here. Facebook emailing HHS saying, I know our teams met today to better understand the scope of what the White House expects from us on misinformation going forward. Are you familiar with that email? No. Let's try another one. And if I should, how about hold on, hold on, that, 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 hold, on. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, we'll get to that. But you're not familiar with this, all right? Let's try a different one. Here's one from July 20th, 2021. The White House emails Facebook saying, "Any way we can get this pulled down?" 46 seconds later, Facebook responds, "Yep, we're on it." Are you familiar with that email? No. Okay. How about how about this one? July 23rd, 2021. Facebook employee writes to HHS, says, thank you for taking the time to meet today. Wanted to make sure you saw the steps we took just this past week to adjust policies and what we are removing with respect to misinformation. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, Senator, we do not instruct. Just just yes, just yes or no. Uh, no, because I'm the okay. secretary of DHS. Well, I'm asking you that because it's funny you say that. A federal judge has just found as a finding of fact, Mr. Secretary, that your office, and I'm going to quote now, is supervising the nerve center of federally directed censorship. It's a federal judge in a federal lawsuit. You are supervising the nerve center of federally directed censorship. Here's another email, August 20th, 2021. Facebook 
writes again to HHS and highlights that Facebook is increasing the strength of our demotions for COVID and vaccine-related content. April 16, 2021, Rob Flaherty at the White House circulates a Zoom meeting invitation to Twitter employees stating White House staff will be briefed by Twitter on vaccine misinformation. We have example after example of this administration coordinated, apparently, according to a federal court, by your agency, pressuring, coercing social media companies to engage in censorship. Is that constitutional? That is unequivocally false. It's what the emails show. It is unequivocally false, Senator. You are not pressuring the big tech companies to take down accounts. You are not meeting with them to ask them to censor on your behalf. That is correct. We are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe the argument is we don't need to pressure them since sort of we all have the same we all share the same perspective and they can do our dirty work. But as Holly pointed out in that same exchange, uh, it is unconstitutional for the federal government to use private third parties to do things the federal government can't do under the Constitution. And that's essentially what he is alleging in no uncertain terms is happening. Boy, and there seems to be a lot of evidence to support that claim, doesn't there? For more on this and other matters regarding big tech and social media, please be joined again by Khalif Lataru, who is a contributor at RealClearPolitics.com. Khalif, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, so the Intercept article that uh, pre- that precipitated that uh, confrontation by Howley of DHS Secretary Mayorkas, is there something there? I mean, it would seem those emails are indicative of some sort of collaboration. You can call it pressuring. You can call it working together. You can call it whatever you want. But it certainly seems problematic uh, from the perspective of the Constitution. You know, and that's the thing with all of this is, you know, so last year for Real Clear, one of the reports that I put out called for social media transparency that, you know, maybe as a society we, we might say, uh, certain, you know, let's say someone tweets and says, hey, you know, drink drain cleaner, it'll carry you of COVID. There are certain things that we might say maybe shouldn't be on there. Uh, but there's other things like when uh, they had when they censored a blood clots and they said, well, any mention of people getting blood clots from the vaccine, we have to ensure that that is not, uh, you know, that's disallowed until it turns out actually that was real. And if they hadn't censored that, maybe we could have gotten ahead of that and prevented a lot of people from getting very ill. So, you know, from my perspective, I think the first step is to say, you know, none of this should be happening in the shadows. Uh, It shouldn't be two years later that all of a sudden we're finding out, uh, you know, about this coordination that occurred. This should have been out there. If the government thought that it was, if the government itself thought that it was legal, constitutional, and important for it to be doing this coordination, that should have been out there. They should have been saying, look, here we're working with, with, with social media companies on this. Here are the specific posts that we've asked them to take down. Here's an actual list. And submit that as public record because then Congress can weigh in and maybe Congress says some of this looks fine. Maybe Congress says, you know what, this is a huge issue. We should not be doing this. But the point is this can't happen in the shadows. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, and, you know, the, the implications of this, too, it, it, it seems a bit disingenuous because – if that federal judge in the uh, case that Holly referenced is correct, that DHS has been operating at the nerve center for all of this business with other agencies and uh, censoring posts that have to do with COVID or with uh, support for Ukraine or whatever the topic is, 
uh, the the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That was one of the topics listed too. Then DHS had this disinformation governance board they set up. Then it got disbanded under public pressure, uh, and they're they went ahead and they're essentially operating like they had that board anyway. They just haven't told anybody about it. So it's not just the conversations that are happening. It's also the way these agencies are operating and how information is flowing and what their real uh, focus is as compared to what they said when they very publicly dismantled something that had become a very public embarrassment. Well, and to me, when, when I read things like this, the first question that pops in my mind is, what else are they doing that we don't right. know about? I mean, right. you know, now we're finding out about this two years later. What are all the things that are ongoing right now? And I think that it's important to note that these are the ones where there may, you know, according to the emails, there was explicit coordination. But I think the, the thing that oftentimes is missing and is one of the things that Elon Musk cited in his takeover of Twitter was that so much of this coordination is not where the White House is actually sitting down in a meeting with employees. It's that employees of the companies share many of the same views and policy uh, beliefs and outcomes that, uh, uh, for example, the Democratic Party does. And so you see this close alignment where you don't need those means, those coordinations, if most of the people at these companies uh, that are coming up with and enforcing the rules share your very beliefs. You don't need to sit down and have that Zoom meeting that you put an email. It's just every day they're enforcing the rules that you wish for. Well, let's talk about Twitter because yesterday was the you know 5 p.m. Eastern time deadline. Either you signed the pledge to work extremely hard or you left and apparently a lot of people left so what's the future of twitter yeah so this is very interesting so you know, you're seeing all this media coverage of the companies in total freefall it's collapsing etc and it's true that advertisers do appear to be pulling out and obviously that's very existential because that's their revenue it is true that employees appear to be resigning in mass but what's interesting is the converse of that, the users. So I just actually am in the process right now of writing, another, of writing an article on this. And so I've been gathering all the numbers. And what's interesting is the total daily volume of tweets, the total number of tweets per day mm-hmm. is not changing. Uh, so it's kind of like earlier this year when Elon Musk first announced he was buying Twitter and you saw all the public figures and celebrities and politicians all said, hey, we're leaving Twitter this afternoon. And nobody did. And that's kind of what we're seeing again is, Yes, there are certainly some people have left, but the people that are leaving are the ones who don't really use it that much. They kind of tweet here and there or they maintain a presence. The folks that actually use the platform every day, they're not leaving. So if you look at the number of tweets per day, the number of users per day, you look at all the core vital statistics of the platform, nothing has changed since uh, you know, before uh, he purchased it and afterwards. Like you can't, you can't, if you look at those graphs, you can't pick the moment where he bought it. So, yes, the company could still go bankrupt because they're losing money and employees. But in terms of users, that tells us there's nowhere else to go. Twitter's unique. Yeah, but well, what was he uh, asking yeah. his employees to do, though? Work 40 hours a week and come into the office? That doesn't seem so, like, extremely hardcore. So, you know, again, that, and I think a lot of this is less about the hours because okay. – you know, Silicon Valley is, is, you know, famous for you sleep in your office. It's crazy, crazy hours. Uh, again, what, what the reality here is, it's somebody that they, that they don't agree with. It's somebody that they don't like. Um, and I think that's, that's the real piece. I mean, you look at these companies, you look at the, like Facebook has what I think they call lockdowns, which are essentially where 
you know, they announce, hey, we want to release this new feature in two weeks. And so sleep in your office if you have to, uh, because I want this done, basically, on this deadline. And so people are perfectly happy in the tech world of putting in those insane hours. What it really comes down to, I think, is, you know, again, it's, it's someone they don't agree with. Um, but amazingly to me, he hasn't really changed the content moderation policies. Like, you know, when he came in, it was this whole idea of it's going to be very free. We're going to really restore freedom of speech. But so far, uh, we're not seeing any wholesale changes uh, on content moderation. So I think a lot of this is kind of anticipation of what he might do and just kind of this, this hatred of, of him. But then also just the chaotic process where it's such a chaos. You know, one day you come to work, your boss is gone, your boss is boss. There's no one to sign your paycheck. Uh, you don't even know who you report to. So I, I think it's kind of that combination of things. Yeah. After all the hysteria yesterday about uh, the deadline and people quitting, Musk tweeted, and we just hit another all-time high in Twitter usage, LOL, um, because people are suggesting, oh, my gosh, 80 percent of the engineers have left. Who's going to fix the bugs? Who's going to? deal with uh, service outages and so on and so forth. He doesn't seem too concerned. And the great irony is that uh, about, I think the survey was about 42% of, of Twitter employees said they were going to walk. That's basically the number of employees, the percentage of employees that Musk came in and said needed to be fired anyway. So he's sort of getting people to do, to volunteer to do what he would otherwise need to do frankly, and for financial reasons in part and for performance reasons in, in, uh, as well. Yeah, you know, it's going to be very interesting because at the end of the day, the advertisers are the big ones. So if you look back uh, in the aftermath of the George, Flo George Floyd protests, you had all these advertisers come together and say, we're pulling out of Facebook. Uh, so that was a target. They targeted Facebook at that point, And you did see a wave of advertisers stop their, their advertising. But Facebook is so central that what you saw is within weeks, they all quietly came back. They didn't, exactly. you know, they did this big publicity when they left, but they all came back. Twitter, though, is a little bit different because on Facebook, you kind of you have a lot much you you essentially you know who's seeing your ads you can measure the impact of those ads and it's really about selling products if you think about facebook when you show someone an ad there is to sell them something twitter it's a little bit different because of the uniqueness of twitter it's kind of almost like brand awareness like hey make certain you know that i exist and it's it's hard to measure the return on that and especially right now with the recession i think a lot of what we're seeing is a lot of advertisers saying you know what we got to cut our spend somewhere twitter was always kind of this questionable one of return on value and hey guess what we can pull all our money from twitter right now uh and it'll be it'll look like this wonderful act that we're standing up against the evil elon musk so let's pull our ads which we want to do anyway so this way we can pull them and we get political credit for it so i think that's part yeah. of it but that also suggests they may not return very rapidly so he's going to be under a lot of pressure to cut costs and find funding bef uh, to kind of bring the place back up but again people aren't leaving the actual users themselves are not leaving twitter right. and that's the million dollar thing is if people themselves are not leaving that means there's no alternative which means eventually people are going to have to make a decision aoc for her part has not left the platform and well, so that yeah kind of, well well, yeah. well musk is under a little bit of, uh, more pressure too because you know, arguably, he paid twice as much for the company as it's worth, yeah. so he probably feels a little bit more pressure than your average Twitter engineer. <laughs> uh, Khalif Lataru is is a contributor at RealClearPolitics.com. Again, RealClearPolitics.com. Khalif, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. 
It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Crypto King, who was felled, Sam Bankman-Fried, tweeting this week. Yeah. I was on the cover of every magazine, and FTX was the darling of Silicon Valley. We got overconfident and careless. You think? Slightly. He also has um, is outing himself and all this ESG mumbo-jumbo, environmental social governance, that's being pushed by the Larry Finks at Blackstone of the world, some of the the, the the titans of Wall Street. Total fraud. And he was one of the poster boys for this fraud. He uh, went on to say, problems were brewing larger than I realized. In the future, I'm going to care less about the dumb, contentless, good actor framework. What matters is what you do is actually doing good or bad, not just talking about doing good or using ESG language. Oh, boy, that's a real break from uh, the second largest donor to the Democrat socialists in this last this uh, last election cycle. That's the reason why Democrats took they're in charge of the Senate now with his money because and running around, you know, these 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 icons, geniuses running around interviews like the one he gave in April to Forbes with Giselle Bündchen. We're giving millions each year to launch sustainability-related initiatives. And now he's BK and Giselle Bündchen and Tom Brady are part of the targets in a class action lawsuit by investors who've lost all their money. The individual who's been appointed to oversee the bankruptcy, John Ray, who oversaw the Enron bankruptcy, Complete failure of corporate controls, unprecedented debacle, is what he said. He's the now the CEO of FTX. He said in a filing to federal bankruptcy court, he's never seen anything as bad as FTX in 40 years of restructuring firms. So many lessons to be gleaned here. Uh, and, you know, you want to resist the temptation to experience schadenfreude at Sam Bankman-Fried's expense, but boy, oh boy. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Jim Nels. He is a uh, supply chain consultant based in Chicago. He's a regular contributor to the National Pulse as well. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Morning, Dan and Amy. And I can promise you I'm not coming to you from a penthouse in the Bahamas sitting in a beanbag chair this morning. That's good. Oh, unless, you, unless, unless you repoed it from Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> I know I can get a good deal on it, but uh, not quite ready to make that leap yet. Well, do you think he's going to go to jail? Uh, probably not. Um, rich people tend not to go to jail. They pay fines. I mean, Bernie Madoff went to jail, but uh, he hurt a lot more people and he hurt old people. Whereas uh, this guy's just hurried a bunch of people who invest in something that 95% of Americans don't understand. Well, and they're also they're also different sort of controls or lack thereof with respect to this fledgling yes. crypto uh, industry than 
things like managing people's uh, retirements, exactly. you know, the sort of legitimate uh, wealth manager. It's a little bit or, or just traditional. I shouldn't say legitimate, but traditional wealth manager. It's a little bit different. I, so he has less legal exposure. Exactly. I find it extremely ironic, though, that the government was using him to help write the rules to govern crypto trading. Um, that's probably the ultimate irony of this whole thing. Yeah, but the government needed it because he was donating to Democratic candidates. Of course. So shouldn't that be stopped or, or regulated somehow? Uh, regulated, yes. Uh, stopped, no. no I, I still think people should have the ability to speak with their, with their pocketbooks when it comes to candidates. But, you know, where do you draw the line? How many billions of dollars are you able to give to a candidate or hundreds of millions of dollars in between he and George Soros? I mean, they basically funded the entire Democratic Senate campaign. What, what does this say, you know, more generally about where America is? And, I mean, it's just it's sort of a human nature thing, so I don't know that it's this particular moment in time. But it does seem to be getting more pronounced. Sort of these magic money billionaires are all geniuses and so on and so forth. Um, and it's real sexy, and uh, I guess there's certainly a lot of ink spilled over it. And, and uh, e even sort of the traditional business press is goes gaga over people like this this guy and yet um those uh who run big manufacturing operations uh the real wealth creators in this country the, the businesses that have real wealth multipliers um you know that's all boring stuff you're just making uh you're just a plastic injection molding or you're just making widgets or this and that and and we're and you're having a hard time filling jobs in that wealth creation sector and no problem filling the ranks of coders for you know, crypto exchanges. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, the, the pay range is a little bit different there. Right. And, you know, labor participation rate right now is still down in the low sixties. I think the last I saw was 62.1, which is near record lows for the last 25 years. Um, but amongst educated people who you know make six figures plus that labor, the labor, the labor participation rate there is much higher. Um, and to your other point, though, you're always I don't think it's a comment on what's going on today. I think it's really you, you always have these these sort of hucksters, these shysters who are able to take advantage of people. I think part of it is one. This is big because, again, it, it's crypto crypto sexy, but not everyone understands it. We've got a 24 seven you know, news cycle that we have to that we have to fill. If this had happened back in 1984, the Tribune would have had a, car, a column on it. The Sun-Times would have had a column on it. Maybe it made world news tonight with Peter Jennings. And then it kind of goes away until the guy goes to trial. Yeah, you know, you just what you, you, you think about promoting, number one, promoting entrepreneurship. Uh, number two, um, promoting engineering, because, I mean, these in the manufacturing sector, there's all sorts of engineering feats and people that are just as smart as these crypto guys that are figuring out problems that ha that real really add value to to quality of life I, I you know and it's it goes back you know one of these things like what you promote you get more of and maybe it's a failure sort of globally um within american institutions to promote those uh multi-generational businesses or to promote starting up a manufacturing concern or some other business that really applies these talents and skill sets in different ways than just trying to um, you know, um, trying to create new money uh, for the purposes of uh, becoming a billionaire on people's ill-informed speculation. No, I agree with you. I mean, there are literally 
millions of people right now working below the radar trying to do things to make sure that Americans have Christmas this year, that there are goods on the shelves, that the, that the ports are cleared up. There are supply chain people who, let's face it, three years ago, no one cared about supply chain, right? And then now here I am on the radio talking about it because it became sexy all of a sudden. But there are a ton of brilliant people that every day spend their entire day trying to figure out how to get the stuff from point A to point B at the, at the most efficient price as fast as possible so that folks can buy the stuff that they want and the stuff that they need. Unfortunately, it's like Fred Smith, right? The founder of FedEx. I mean, yeah, people know who he is and, and so on and so forth. But I mean, there's no like attached celebrity to him like these, you know, like some of these crypto guys and, and so no. on and so forth. And and I mean, you talk about like the genius of, of of Fred Smith and the people at FedEx who built this company from from zero to what it is. And that happened in his lifetime, which is also sort of an incredible feat. I, I just, I, you know, it's not to say people can't experiment and, and pursue ventures in whatever direction they want. I'm all for it, but it's just sort of like what we place value on because we understand what's actually valuable. Exactly. But you know, at the end of the day, FedEx will still be there. Home Depot will still be there. The supply chain is still going to be there. And this Bitcoin guy will probably fade into obscurity over time. Yeah. So where do we find ourselves here? You know, um, 75 percent of the country believes we're in a recession. That's how what they're feeling. Um, but a lot of the uh, uh, investotainers are not ready to call it a recession yet, though they anticipate one next year. What are we seeing from those uh, small business owner operators, the entrepreneur set that may indicate which way this is going? Well, a couple things real quick. So the inflation rate in October was 7.7%, and that was down from 8.2% in September. Everyone got all excited, victory laps by the Biden administration, uh, dogs, cats, uh, circus clowns, everybody all excited with that. But then if you get into the numbers, what drove the inflation, the, the growth of inflation down, not inflation, but the growth of inflation down, were decreases in the prices of four key commodities, smartphones, tickets to sporting events, televisions, and women's clothing. Things that you actually need to buy, food was up 12.5%, shelter was up 7%, and energy was up 18%. Those three categories, food, shelter, and energy, represent approximately 65% of the average household's budget. So the average household's budget was up almost double digits in the month of October, and now we're seeing that trickle into the, into the economy even more. So there's an interesting study that came out the other day that said 37% of small businesses were unable to pay their rent in full in the month of October, and that was up 7% from September. Um, they're seeing this because the rents are going up. Half the folks reported more than a 10% price increase in their rent. One in seven reported a 20% price increase in their rent. And what's interesting is this is where it, get, it pays to actually read the study and not the headline. When you get deep into the study and understand what what sections of industry are being hit. It's places with discretionary spending or places dependent on the supply chain. Restaurants, half of restaurants did not make rent. 40% um, of real estate agencies did not make rent. 50% of auto repair shops did not make rent. 43% of all retailers did not make rent. The number one um, sector of the economy that did not make rent in the month of October were educational service providers, which is something that if you're struggling as a family, that's one of the first things you're going to cut. You're going to stop sending your kid to extra tutoring, and you're going to stop going out to dinner. So, And then the commercial property tax rates are only going to get higher, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, both the commercial property tax rates are, are coming up. Uh, we're also going to see in Illinois 
Uh, there's a pending unemployment tax hike that's coming up. And then there's the homeowner property tax that's going to come up as well. And remember, most small business owners don't file as businesses. They file as individuals. So they're going to get killed on either the, the property tax that they're paying on their location for, say, a restaurant or an auto shop, and then for on their home as well. So it's a, it's a double whammy for these poor guys. Uh, since you're based in Chicago, uh, give us a little bit of your take on Chicago, because I, I just saw an ad for Lori Lightfoot. Oh. She's running for re-election for mayor. Uh, that uh, um, that Chicago is leading the nation in corporate location, uh, corporate locations, and so I didn't realize that Chicago was such a magnet. Apparently, we've missed all the companies moving in uh, amid the headlines of Citadel and Boeing and and Tyson Foods moving out. So we we missed that. We're, we're number one. Uh, I. I saw the I saw the ad last night and I kind of fell off my chair. I just had a piece published in, on FoxNews.com the other week about why I chose to stay in Chicago, not flee to a, a red state. And in those, we talked about the corporations that are heading for greener pastures: Boeing, Caterpillar, Citadel. We all saw the the public spat between Lori Lightfoot and the CEO of McDonald's as he's threatening to move McDonald's out of Chicago for the safety of his workers. So. You know, it, 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 it's terrible. And, you know, Illinois has been rated as um, one of the worst states to do business for the last 11 consecutive years. We're trying really hard to make it 12 straight. And so what's your pro- I mean, you know, we, we have uh, significant, as a lot of big cities do, significant commercial vacancy rates uh, in the I, I think Mag Mile is in the still in the 30s. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, this is not unusual for big cities, but. It just means that there's a, a problem that all these big cities have with uh, vacancy rates and uh, all of the associated problems that come with that. And, and I just, I, you know, is it, is, is Chicago doesn't seem to me to be a city that's on the march, despite the propagandizing otherwise. But I wanted your handle on it. You're probably closer to it than I am. No, uh, you know, Chicago and Illinois is, is really not. So, you know, Illinois has led the Midwest in um, – in flight, uh, population decreases. So in from July 2020 through July 2021, over 110,000 people fled Illinois. No other state in the region hit 17, more than 17,000 people. And who leaves? It's the richest, most educated people that leave, the entrepreneurs, the people that create jobs for people. And that does a couple of things. It leaves the majority of the unfair tax burden in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois on the people who can least afford to pay it, number one. Number two, if you're looking to start a new business and you're looking at the demographics and you're saying, okay, do I want to go to a state that leads the nation and people leaving, or do I want to go to a state that leads the nation and people coming into it, what are you going to choose? So as we see the mag mile with the vacancy rates down there, and that really started with COVID when people couldn't make their, make their rent, they shut down. And then you had the, the BLM riots that followed during that same period of time. And now you're in a recession. No one's going to go invest money on the Magnificent Mile, especially when the police aren't even able to stop the looters from coming in and, you know, doing these these mass stealings that happen all over the place in the big cities. What's the last uh, sector to um, to to indicate that Illinois is not a place that uh, is viable anymore? Would it be logistics just based on our location? I mean, manufacturing, we still have it's a significant uh, manufacturing base around O'Hare and. And, and so forth. But but I mean, but but, you know, it's but it still seems to be uh, there still seems to be atrophy there. And and, you know, and then logistics, too. I mean, the transportation and the, the manufacturing base, the location of Chicago are huge advantages. But 
uh, even those can only maintain advantages under so much and stay advantages uh, under so much weight. I tell you what, one of the things that I watch is the um, the utilization capacity of the warehouses that are on I-55 between the tri-state as you head down towards uh, Joliet and Romeoville and those areas. There are a ton of distribution centers down mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And if you start to see those uh, vacancy rates decline, or excuse me, the vacancy rates of those places increase and the utilization rates decrease, we're in trouble because that means people are choosing to incur higher costs to move to a less centralized location in the country to distribute their goods. And that's a huge indicator that things are going to go bad. The other thing that I, I keep an eye on is, quite frankly, I keep an eye on the, uh, the short-term parking lot at O'Hare. Is it full or is it empty? Because if it's empty, people aren't traveling for work anymore. They're not traveling for fun. That really hits the recession. And the last thing that I actually watch uh, is the Walmart parking lot. When you start seeing Mercedes, Benzes, Audis, Porsches, and the Walmarts, uh, you know that people are really watching their money. And that's another great sign. And that's why, if you think about it, uh, in the same week, Walmart reported growth, and they, they upped their, their estimates for the year, and Target took their numbers down. People are leaving Target and flocking to Walmart, and that's not a good sign for the economy. Jim Nels, supply chain consultant based here in Chicago, regular contributor to National Pulse as well. Jim, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Dan and Amy, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560. The answer. Open mic. Open mic Friday. Call it now. Open mic Friday. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's that time of the week. Open Mic Friday, taking your calls, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, comments, compliments, concerns, general crack pottery, we'll take it all. And we begin with this uh, story out of L.A. we've been following the last several days. It's not getting nearly enough attention. The guy who mowed down 25 L.A. sheriff cadets. Dismembered two of them, and two, by the way, are still in critical condition. That lost limbs. They're not, yes. Yeah. Right. Um, and right. And so, and you, you just heard Mike Scott reporting it. So I know they got a forty-eight hour hold. So they they bring him in yesterday. They uh, move to charge him with attempted murder of a peace officer. Then they release him because they've got a limit on the uh, a forty-eight uh, hour hold limit. And then the the word is that you know they plan on rearresting him today. Um, I, okay, I, I get the I get the forty eight hour hold, and I and I get you have to deal with George Garcon, who is the L.A. District Attorney, and that's that might be part of the problem. And I think some questions should be asked in his direction too, not just to the L.A. County Sheriff. So, why can't you get him arraigned and held within forty eight hours? You know, because there is some evidence. Uh, yeah, there's no skid marks. It, he was going there, 30 miles per hour. It, here, here's the evidence. Whether you've had time for your uh, tech team to identify skid marks and, and, and rate of speed and all these things. Here, here's the evidence. It was purposeful. He mowed down 25 L.A. sheriff's recruits on a sidewalk. Here's evidence. There's video of it. I... I I don't understand because, you know, when you release somebody, 
I mean, I, I if they plan to rearrest him today, okay, good, and I hope they do. I hope he's not on the lam already. I hope we, he's. They don't have uh, laws in L.A. like we have uh, soon to take effect in Illinois, where you got to wait till he's gone for forty hours before you can declare him uh, having fled and then try to locate him. Hope he doesn't go into Mexico. Uh, this this whole thing is so bizarre. From the beginning of this, where they couldn't exactly say if this was an accident or purpose, oh, twenty five. On the sidewalk? At first, they they did say it appears to be an accident, then they changed their tune. How is that? How is that? How could it possibly be an accident? It wasn't like a senior citizen who plowed into you know a mall that was you know at street grade level. I mean, what what are you talking about? What this is this is this is bizarre. And I and I and again, I'm inclined to like that Villanueva, the sheriff in L.A. County, because he's sort of talk sense before, and that's a place where not very many people do talk sense, as we all know. Uh, Gasson, the district attorney there, Soros-funded district attorney, is awful. Horrible. Um, so, you know, what is what is really going on here, and and what was the motive for this, and what do we know about this 22-year-old who's the responsible Nothing. party, and where is he now, and where will he be back? When will he be back in police custody, and how long does it take to put together enough evidence to have a judge say, well, no bail, or or you know, bail at a very very high level, such that it would be ostensibly difficult for him to make? Well, because journalists don't care, investigative reporters they don't care because why? Because the victims are cops. Yeah. I mean, it's conjecture on my part, but, I mean, normally you'd be all over. You'd be following him when he got released. You'd find where he worked, where he lived. I haven't seen any of that. And no exteriors of his house, reaction from his parents or anybody. Nothing. Yeah, family members and all the whole thing. Right. Yeah, what do we know? What do we know about basics of journalism? What do we know about social media? What do we know Mm -hmm. about this? I mean, I've seen his name reported. I'm not going to repeat it, but, but that's about all I've seen. Right. Negligent. All the reporters are negligent. And they have plenty of reporters in L.A. Eduardo Midway. Uh, I was listening to uh, their KFI over there in L.A., and I'm I'm sorry to hear that Mr. Benelow is going to lose to somebody last name Luna in the election. But I get an address here if anybody wants to make a donation. It's uh, Shares Relief Foundation, Class 464 Recruits. Uh, that's on the memo line, and then one one five one five, Colima, B O L I M A Road, Building B, Whittier, Whittier, California, nine zero six zero four. FYI, is there, is there a website? You, you um, don't, you don't have a website. Well, you, other than the the uh, station over there, K K five. Well, that that probably would be yeah. a good place to start. Yeah. But uh, yeah, okay, the sheriff's relief fund. All right, thanks, Eduardo. Appreciate it. We'll stay on that case. I mean, I, ostensibly there'll be developments today and over the weekend, but I mean, it's just this just well, been. They better rearrest him soon, too. So strange. Uh, Paul in Warrenville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, I'd like to uh, nominate uh, uh, Babies in the Womb for Persons of the for Time mag- Magazine's Persons of the Year for celebrating uh, the uh, Roe v. Wade victory. Okay, all right, Paul. We'll pass that on to Time Magazine. I've got a person of the year. Yeah. Dan Proft? No. Uh, Uncle Chen. Uncle Chen. Uncle Chen uh, is this runner who's gone viral 
who ran a marathon in, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, in Jiandi, China. Mm-hmm. Ran a marathon three hours and 28 minutes while chain smoking. Oh, <laughs> I freaking awesome. That. He's in good shape. I know, yeah. I saw that. Three hours and 20 minutes, he qualified for Boston. He finished in the top third of runners. Holy cow. 50 years old from Guangzhou. I know some Chain people smoking. who get stoned before they, or they just take up some hits, a pot, and then run a marathon. This guy's running with a with what, a singing? with a budge, yeah, with in his mouth the whole time. Freaking awesome! Hey, tell me again how running's a sport. Uncle Chen, man of the year, <laughs> the the uh, chain smoking marathoner. Uh, All right, uh, John in Bridgeport. Okay, you heard it here first, guys. Watch for Ray Lopez to drop out of the mayoral race, and it'll be a three-horse race then between Chewy, Paul Vallis, and Lightfoot. With why, a middle-class Hispanic why, insider. Why, 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 is Ray, why is Ray Lopez dropping out? Chewy he cannot get uh, – you heard it here first. He cannot get the money together or the campaign team to compete against those heavyweights that I just mentioned. Yeah. All he has is just name recognition that, uh, in that he told Lightfoot to go pound it. Right. But with that being said, watch Vallis, the most intelligent one, to go after the middle-class Hispanics and tell them you're better off with me than with the communist Chewy. There you have it. All have right. a good weekend. Thanks for the call, and then, John. Then could Lopez keep his automatic seat because you can't be an alderman and run against or run for mayor? Right, assuming he files for re-election, which I'm assuming he will. I hope so. We, uh, they need him on there. Um, well, he's the only one to push his back against Lightfoot. And... John in Libertyville. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I just wanted to call and express my deep dis- uh, disappointment that Pat Quinn is no longer running or won't run for uh, mayor. You know, I, I, there was a lot of buzz going around and, and excitement. Oh, yeah. Oh, excitement. Yeah. Yeah. Women yeah. were throwing Palpable. their panties at him. They were so political excited. Political you know. Palpable. Uh, but I also wanted to comment about Chewy Garcia receiving uh, – $200,000 worth of help in his primary from Protect Our Future PAC, which was Sam Bankman Freed's uh, PAC. And I was wondering, will he be returning any money? How much did he get in the general election? Uh, will any news outlets cover this yeah. in, in Chicago? Thanks for the call, John. Uh, first of all, you're a Libertyville resident, and I'm a Naples, Florida resident, so we're not allowed to ask the question. So, Amy, we'll have question. to rely on Amy to ask no, the I would, question. No, because when I wear between two hundred to 900000 right? Yeah, he was in the cohort of Congress beings that received that amount of cash from send the money it. that uh, Sam Bankman Free funneled into that pack. That's send great. it back. He should give the money back. <laughs> but will he? Dun, dun, dun. Elliot Wilmette. Hey, it's, uh, um, I was just going to say, that did the uh, election judge thing, and we're still using the Dominion voting machines. And until we get rid of those, um, the, uh, the, the drama between Trump and DeSantis is going to be meaningless. The Republicans and Democrats who run the election are never going to let a substantial number of Republicans or any president, uh, Republican candidate for presidency ever win. They're, they're They've got entire control of it, and they ain't gonna let it. Ain't gonna give it up. Okay, Elliot. I don't agree with that, but okay. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't really want to undertake that argument again and again and again. Steve in Orland Park. 
Yeah, hi, Dan. I have a question for you. I always wanted to know, uh, actually, quite a few of us wanted to know. We can't get a clear answer on it. Is the United States of America a republic or is it a democracy? And it's a represent- can you explain the difference to it's a representative could republic. Explain the difference. Yeah, the di- the difference okay. is we the difference is it's not a direct democracy. We don't have a plebiscite in every issue. We elect people who make decisions on our behalf. That's the definition of a small r republican form of government. You elect the representatives who uh, who act in on your behalf. It's not a uh, you know a, like it's not like California, although they have. Obviously, a legislature and a court system as well, but the you know where they do the so much by by popular referendum. That's not how the country works, generally speaking. It's through your elected representative representatives, a representative republic. So it's still considered a republic. It's a republic. Yes. Because I hear a lot about it's a democracy. So well, they, okay. yeah, thanks thanks for the call, Steve. I mean, they use that. You know, we use these phrases interchangeably, even though there are differences, because, I don't know, people don't know what a republic is, and democracy is is one of those words that sounds egalitarian and uh, sounds better when you say threats to it, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, nobody knows anything. <laughs> so you just, you just run around and say... It's, parroting phrases that sound good that sound oh. enlightened that sound uh, positive so sound like yeah protecting our democracy uh, democracy, democracy democracy you know Biden said and, it 37 times in his 21 minute speech well, of course it's all you know like it's a like drinking de- game now democracies versus dictatorships i mean it's just the way it's used in common parlance and so that's how they speak nobody has time to try to make important distinctions. Hey, can I quickly give a shout out to Norman Thomas? He sadly was shot. He was a security guard at the jewelry store in Cal City at that mall there. Mm-hmm. Served two tours in Desert Storm. Was a grandpa, a father, beloved, loved life. He loved his job. And this is what his family said. And it really, it, it, it hits your heart. He came all the way from Desert Storm and never got injured or anything over in the military. Then he comes here and then he gets killed doing his job. It's just so. A Chicagoland. Sick. Yeah, this is what you get. So get it, and more of it's coming with the Safety no. Act. You heard it here first and 500,000 times in the last six months. So, okay. Yep. It's a terrible thing. So sad for his family. Uh, Mo in Lions. Hi, Dan. Hi, Amy. Uh, Dan, I wonder if you had any money left in your uh, pack. Uh, I have an idea for a uh, post-election bumper sticker. Okay, let's say I do, just so I can hear the idea. <laughs> okay, uh, the bumper sticker. On the top it says, uh, Illinois, worst governed state in the union. And then it says, hey, don't blame me. I voted for the farmer, not the pig. A little long right. for a bumper <laughs> sticker, know. but you get the you know small yeah, font, yeah, real mm. small font. Um, I'm gonna risk it, Dan, on the southwest side. Hey, I just want to comment uh, on the NATO's handling of the Ukrainian bombs. It reminded me of a story and a joke. Uh, the first is, I met a very good friend when we were fellows locally here in Chicago. He went on to become famous. I decided to stay on the southwest side and yell at the radio in my garage, but I gave a talk at the University of Bonn, 
and we were overlooking the Rhine River, munching on uh, uh, Gelderlander Metwurst and uh, plenty of Kolsch beer, and he was telling me about the errant bombings of the um, Allied bombardiers, and he looked at it, surveyed the countryside, and he said, no wonder men's toilets look like that in the U.S. And now the joke. Uh, this past Halloween, I went out dressed as a chicken. <laughs> I, I met an Irish lass who was dressed as an egg. One thing led to another, as Chuck, Delvin, Chuck from Delvin would say, and the timeless question was answered. It was the chicken. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Oh. Uh, thank you, Dan. We appreciate you staying on the southwest side to yell at your radio essay. Vocation. Scream at your radio. Yeah. Uh huh. That's, That's a good pickup line, though. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rick Downers Grove. Maybe you could use it. Hey, good morning. I run into somebody hey, like an egg. Yeah. Hey, how confident are you really with uh, Kevin McCarthy actually fulfilling what he says he's going to do, investigating Hunter Biden and the Biden family and stuff like that? Because I feel he's going to be like that Eddie Munster lookalike, Paul Ryan. Back when he was speaker with the Obamacare, a lot of talk, nothing happens. And it's like the Durham report. I mean, where's Waldo with that? I mean, nothing ever happens. They talk big, they go on all the shows, and it always fizzles out to nothing. Well, the Obamacare repeal, you'll remember, stalled in the Senate because of one John McCain, not in the House. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I don't think anybody's going to be able to stop Jim Jordan and Jim Comer and others after the— performance they put on yesterday in terms of investigating Hunter Biden and going wherever this leads. And I would say the same about senators that are returning, like Ron Johnson, uh, along with Chuck Grassley in the Senate, even in the minority. Uh, So, yeah, no, I, I, you know, is Kevin McCarthy Winston Churchill? No. But um, are some of these things going to move uh, as fast as the power afforded the Republican majority in the House can move them? I think so, yeah. I do have some confidence there. Why aren't they going to subpoena Biden, though? You know, we're not they there decided. yet. I know. We're not there yet. Well, they, that's a big breaking news. Or, or yeah, we're, 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 subpoena we're, Hunter, you, but not President you Biden. Got a, you've got a long way to go. Okay, There's all sorts of unanswered see. questions, and, and how many? who knows how many more whistleblowers will be coming forward, and who knows how many former business current or former business partners of hunter biden you know let's let's methodically work our way up the food chain here a little bit they comer laid out what they have and that between the two of them comer and jordan they started to you know openly ask some questions that need answers so you know let's let them do their work when they have the power of things like subpoena see what they do chuck and delavan Hey, thanks, Dan, for the heads up and everything. Uh, I wanted to say um, a couple different things. My best pickup line was my girlfriend that I got right now, she goes, what makes you such a good dancer? And I said, well, my grandmother was a movie Hollywood starlet. Back in the 20s, she had unprotected sex with Fred Astaire. Hey, I'm heading out to uh, Magpies today. They've got a tent where you can go inside the tent and drink. It's right downtown Lake Geneva, and it's going to be nothing but excitement. And they have little domes or you can go in there and hide in a dome with heaters. It's so much fun. Hmm. All right. well, thanks for the call check. I thought Magpies was located in Hinsdale. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile.
Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.